as a professor, there are a few joys that, that we have in life. One of the joys is inflicting upon our students tests. Now, it is a deviant joy, but a joy nonetheless. Now, continuing in my professorial role, I'd like to offer you a test, but just a small taste, a question. If I were to ask you, which of the following is spiritual? A, labor, as in work. B, the body, as in our physical body. C, the Bible. Or D, language. Which would you answer? Now, don't answer now, because I'm not completely in my professorial role. But what would your answer be? Probably two things immediately occur. Well, spiritual, therefore, C, the most common answer, the Bible. But that's too easy. And you are a very sophisticated audience, so you know that's not the answer. It's what we professors call a hook. We want to woo you with an easy answer so that we can set the hook. But the second response would be, well, what do you mean by spiritual? Now, that is the thoughtful response. It's a very good question, because if you answer that correctly, it leads to the answer to the original question. What does it mean to be spiritual? This is precisely what Paul pushes us to think about in this closing phrase of the verse we have been in for some time. So I know you don't need to, but if you were to want to read along with us, Romans 12, verse 1 reads, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, a holy and holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What does Paul mean by spiritual act of worship? Before we begin, let's approach the throne of grace and ask his blessings on us this morning. Our Father, we are mindful that you are the creator of all things in heaven and earth and those things in heaven and in earth. And Lord, we are mindful that we are your creatures. You have shaped us and you have formed us. You have breathed life into us. And you have made us for one great end. And that is to know you, to love you, and enjoy you. And Lord, we are here this morning to meet as your body, the church, the bride of Christ, to come to know you more fully, that we might enjoy you. And so I pray that as the Bible, your word is opened, you would bless it and break it and nourish our souls with it. And we pray it in that blessed name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What does Paul mean by spiritual? Spiritual here is a, is a translation of a term that is logikin. And it is a Greek term, and we hear in it an English term, logic. This has led many to translate the word, and some of your translations may have it, your reasonable sacrifice. 
Now, it is a very difficult word. As a matter of fact, there is untold amount of scholarly ink spilt on trying to figure out what in the world this means. Now, this warms my blood, and it's the precise stuff that I relish, but I also know that it stills everybody else's blood. So I'm not going to delve into it. But some translate it reasonable sacrifice in the sense that after all Paul has been teaching us, presenting our bodies to Christ only makes sense. It is reasonable in that it makes sense. It's the natural follow-through of all that God has done. But there's also a deeper sense that calls people to translate it your reasonable or rational service. In the context, we see this renewing our mind. And so it has led some translators to use the term rational in the sense that our worship of God ought to be intelligent. Our mind ought to be engaged to know God. And as we do that, we are fulfilling our rational sacrifice. As a matter of fact, no less a thinker than, than John Murray says that this is characterized by conscious, intelligent, consecrated devotion to the service of God. This gets us much closer, but it still falls a little short because intelligence isn't alone what God is after. And so there's a fuller sense that I believe spiritual characterizes. Now, there's only one other use of this term in the New Testament. It's found in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. If you have your outline, you can see I have it printed there for you, and all the verses are in the NIV. But 1 Peter 2, 2 says, Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual, logican, pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now, milk is used in both a positive and negative sense in Scripture. Sometimes it's used as a sign of immaturity. So that you should be eating meat, but you can't, so you're stuck with milk. But here, as you can sense, this is a positive use of the term milk. It is that which nourishes and sustains us. Now, Peter's drawing a contrast here, or rather a parallel, between the physical milk that sustains physical life and the spiritual milk which sustains spiritual life. Now, this brings us back to Romans. It is this sense of contrast that I think Paul picks up on this term. Now, while we only have this term used two times in the New Testament, it was all over the place in the Greco-Roman culture. And interestingly enough, it carries with it strong, very pronounced religious implications. It was used in the Greco-Roman culture to contrast what they believed as genuine worship from that which was merely sacrificial worship, bodily worship, prompted by superstition. It is the material, as it were. But this couldn't be true worship because what we have in common with the gods, according to the Greco-Roman world, was our intellect, that which is non-material. And so the Greco-Roman culture would have immediately understood this as a contrast between the material and the immaterial. Now, I believe this is what Paul is picking up on. Paul's concept is to drive home a thoroughly biblical understanding of worship. That it is not simply a matter of material, 
nor is it simply a matter of the inner attitude. It joins them together in a thoroughly biblical way. Now, what I'm not saying is what Paul is trying to teach us is that worship is simply a matter of the inner attitude, but rather that these two are joined together, that the inner attitude is basic to and orients our bodily activity, our physical response. He joins these two together in a very beautiful way. Now, spiritual characterizes worship that is God-pleasing. Spiritual characterizes worship. As you look here, it says, this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, Paul chooses a word here that has dramatic Old Testament implications. It carries with the connotation of temple worship. As a matter of fact, if you're really inquisitive, you can flip back to chapter 9, verse 4, where it's translated temple worship. Now, this brings to mind the sacrificial system. Now, the sacrificial system is set up to operate in a confined way. At certain times, you bring certain closely prescribed objects to a closely prescribed place, and it is brought to the priest, and the priest takes it and offers it before the Lord. And so it is a very confined, prescribed worship. Now, it is never intended to be only that, this bringing of the sacrifice. Because as I mentioned, Paul tries to tie these two together, or Paul is tying these two together. But he sees that he has strong biblical precedence. In Deuteronomy, also in your outline, you read in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 14, where we see, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Do you see how in Scripture the idea is always the inner attitude of love and humility orients the expression of obedience, physically. So that what God is after right, is one's heart, which is expressed in obedience. So that one becomes an expression of the other. These two are joined inextricably by Paul here in the New Testament. And his joining these together has profound implications for the Christian life. Now, let's move forward. Having seen in the Old Testament, let's move forward again to Romans 12, verse 1. Is Paul simply restating the concept of the Old Testament sacrifice? No. He's not simply restating it at all. Paul is talking about using this word, that which was confined to certain place, to certain time. But here in the New Testament, he expands the idea of worship, so that it is not confined to time and place, but rather encompasses all of life. This is the idea of the living sacrifice. Now, this is the final phrase which qualifies all that has come before. And when he talks about living sacrifice, it is a very powerful image, given the Old Testament implications of it. I have a friend that used to say, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. Now, <laughs> 
it is very funny when you, when you stop and think about that image. But I think this is Paul's exact point. A living sacrifice is not to remain on the altar. But his precise point is that it is to be off the altar and throughout all of life. But what are we presenting as a living sacrifice? Let's test your knowledge. You've been five weeks into it, so I'm sure you've got it memorized. We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that's an important word. Bodies. What do you do with your bodies? Again, don't answer. (laughs) But just think about it. What do you do with your bodies? Is there anything you really don't do with your body? There are interesting philosophical discussions on the connection between the mind and the brain. And that I don't want to get into details of that. But if there is a separation between the mind and the brain, who's going to volunteer for the experiment? And if there is a separation, what's it going to matter once it's separated? Well, what do you do with your bodies? Now think about that for a moment. Through the day, what do you do with your bodies? Now you get a sense of the profound implications that Paul is driving home. For everything you do with your bodies becomes your spiritual act of worship. So that whatever you do with your bodies is an act of worship to God. Now for some, that is absolutely terrifying. Because we are not presenting to God our best, the first fruits. But it is this living sacrifice. We are to present our bodies. All that we do, do you see how this opens up worship? It is not confined to one time, to one place, to one object, but it encompasses all of life so that everything you do from the time you get up to the time you go to bed is a means of worshiping God. Now, there is great importance for this because there's something in Christendom today called dualism. Now, dualism basically sees all of life divided into two spheres. One sphere is what we would call the sacred. It is that which we are doing now on Sundays or in our private time of Bible study. That is the sacred sphere. And it is airtight and divided from that other sphere, which is called the secular sphere. Now, this is what goes on Monday through Saturday. It's what goes on with the rest of life, which is proportionally much greater. Now, there are two errors that occur from this, this notion of this compartmentalization of life. One is what I call Christian schizophrenia, which is you view you are two different persons given which sphere you operate in. So that Monday through Saturday, you are a different person. You do different things than you are and do on Sundays or in your private spiritual life. For when you're in the secular, you do as the secular does. But when you're in the spiritual, you do as the spiritual does. Now, this, as I mentioned, is an error. And it is precisely this that Paul is undercutting with the concept of presenting your bodies as living sacrifices 
holy and pleasing unto Him, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Because what we do in the so-called secular realm is precisely what is to be our spiritual act of worship. The second error is viewing the spiritual sphere, the sacred sphere, in terms of an ark. Where we basically pull back and withdraw from all that is secular. So we try to keep our hands clean and pure. And so we don't involve ourselves with those things that are bad, that could lead to corruption. Because we are, after all, in the spiritual bubble. Now, as I mentioned, these are two errors. These are ways of looking at the world in a way that a Christian ought not. What Paul is driving home is the full implications of the work of Christ. The fullness of redemption in Christ. So that everything we do in life, Everything we say, everything we think, all our work is a means of a spiritual act of worship. Now, I mentioned that can terrify you, but it should also invigorate life. Because when you get up and go to work in the morning, you know what? Everything you do is a means of worshiping the God you love. So that nothing you do tomorrow is meaningless. Now think about that. It is very humbling to consider life in China. You know, you tend to think yourself pretty important because all you're ever around is your family and friends who tend to make you feel important. Sometimes. <laughs> but when you start thinking of those on the other side of the earth that, that don't give a, a rip about you, your life could end and nothing would change in their lives. But when you consider what Paul is saying here, what you do tomorrow matters in time, but also in eternity, because it matters to God. It is your spiritual act of worship. As I speak on these things, a phrase keeps coming back to mind that comes from a movie that, that I enjoy. It's Chariots of Fire. And when I was a teenager, it put me to sleep like that. Uh, because you, your mind typically doesn't work in those ways. I thought the beach scene was really cool with them running down the beach. But other than that, it was, it was a yarn. Now, a more mature mind, however, appreciates that. So now that I'm a little older, a little more mature, thanks be to God, I can appreciate these things. But there's one poignant scene where Eric Lytle, the runner who is a Christian, is out in this field with his sister. And his sister is trying to persuade him to put away all these foolish dreams of running. After all, running is a secular affair and it's trivial. In the grand scheme of things, it does not matter to God. And in his response to her, he has this one phrase that just rings in my mind every time I think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. He responds to her and says, when I run... I feel God's pleasure upon me. That is presenting your bodies and it is your spiritual act of worship. Running seems so trivial to the kingdom of God, but you know, God has given this to us. He has created us in this way so that everything we do becomes a means of God-pleasing worship. 
Spiritual characterizes God-pleasing worship. God-pleasing worship is the worship of a consecrated life. Now, this is very encouraging. It invigorates life. And I would love to stop here with a word of prayer. But I have a long time left to go. And so I can't. Just kidding. This is a truth that, that Paul presses home to us. That everything we do in the body is a means of spiritual worship. Mind, body, soul, spirit, everything is a part of worshiping God. But this is also what Paul must urge us to. Do you notice this? Sounds great, doesn't it? But it is this to which Paul must urge us. Why must he urge us to do this that sounds so amazing? <laughs> because sitting here, it sounds very easy. But just as Paul picks up on the Old Testament ideas of the sacrifice in order to teach the fullness of the sacrifice of Christ and the calling upon our lives as Christians, just as he appeals to that, there are also temptations that went along with that that parallel the temptations we face as living sacrifices. There was always this danger of just going through the motions, of presenting to God, it may be a lamb that is without blemish, but that's as far as the sacrifice goes. I give God this, and the rest of my heart, mind, and soul remains untouched. Do you remember in Amos, the kind, cuddly words God uses for this kind of sacrifice? It is a stench to him. But it is this temptation that we face today. It is this temptation to give things to God and never give that sacrifice which he is after. Presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. James Montgomery Boyce says it is the temptation to give gifts to God. But God is never after the gift. He's after the giver. And that characterizes this temptation. And it's precisely this that Paul must urge us beyond. As I thought on this, I was reminded of one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 6. You see on your outline here, Micah 6. And if we begin with verse 6, we see precisely this problem. The giving of gifts and withholding the giver. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Do you notice the progression here? There is this presentation of a quality gift. If quality doesn't get it, how about quantity? Well, if that doesn't get it, let's go for the ludicrous. The most extreme gift I can think of. Presenting gifts, but never getting at what God wants. Now, the context of this is really fascinating. The lawyers among you will love this. Because it is a courtroom setting. God is calling his people to account for their turning away from who he is and what he's called them to. God is the prosecuting attorney, as it were. 
Talk about a little unnerving. Who are the witnesses? The mountains before which the people of Israel pledged to be faithful to God. God calls the mountains to testify against them. And it is in this setting that they respond in this way. They're called to account by God himself. <laughs> they say, well, with what will God be pleased? Quality, quantity, the extreme that I can even imagine. Now, Micah 6.8 is one of those poignant verses because it cuts to the quick. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is it. This joining together. But it is such a temptation to give the gifts and never give God what he is truly after. I'll give God my tithe, but not my heart. I will give God my time, but never myself. Now, all of us have giving, given gifts begrudgingly. My kids went to a birthday party last night, and things have changed since I was a, a kid. Now it's just kind of drop and go. Uh, you drop it, and you go have fun, you play, and you never see the person open it. When I was a child, <laughs> it was much more tortured. Because your mom always bought the best toys to give away. You ever notice that? <laughs> they always did. And so you see her wrapping it, and you're looking with longing upon that toy. And then it's time to go. And you put, you're put in clothes you don't want to wear. To go to this birthday party that you don't want to go to. To give a gift that you don't want to give. And they sit the birthday boy right in the middle and everybody's gathered around. You have to go present your gift to them. And so you, you carry your gift and you kind of hold on to it when they're trying to take it away. And you go back thinking, you know, I can make much better use of that toy than this person ever could. Giving gifts begrudgingly. We all know that feeling because we may wear clothes that we are more comfortable in, but we don't leave the attitudes behind. Now, compare this with a gift to a loved one where you are so excited to have this gift because you know it's something they've wanted. And so you wrap it up with excitement and you can't wait to give it to them. And when you give it to them, you almost want to help them open it up. But your attention is not on the gift. Your attention is fixed on the eyes. <laughs> because that is where the expression comes. And when the gift is opened up, and the eyes are opened up, there is a thrill which cannot be matched. Do you see the difference between these two? It's not so subtle, is it? Where one, the gift is given begrudgingly, thinking I could do better, for this myself. But the other, the gift is an expression of the love. The gift is, as it were, an embodiment of the love of the heart. This is that genuine gift that God is after. Again, not of lambs and bulls or goats, but of you and everything you do. This is that living sacrifice. 
Presenting our bodies unto God so that everything we do becomes a gift that is pleasing to God. Now this changes the way we look at life. It also changes the way we look at sin. When we think of sin, we tend to fear sin because of the punishment. But when one understands the fullness of what Paul is teaching, one fears sin not because of the punishment, but because of the displeasure that it gives the God we love. And so one seeks not to avoid sin and fears sin because it is something that can somehow corrupt us, but we fear sin because it is displeasing to the one we love more than anything else in life. When you understand all that Paul is teaching, it really gives freedom to life. But it is this to which he must urge us. Because the great temptation is to keep chunking things on the altar and never get to that which God wants. Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is the fullness of our redemption. It is to this that God must urge us, Paul must urge us. But he urges us based on what? The mercy of God. Now again, as we consider these things, why in the world would you hesitate? Well, the answer to that, I think, can be summed up in one word. Fear. Why do we hesitate to lay it all down before a God who loves us, who created us? Fear. Because you know what? When I lay it all out before God and I give Him everything, He may take my life in a way that I don't want to go. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the whole idea of sacrifice. Isn't it? To recall what David says in the closing pages, Samuel, he is offering a sacrifice. He goes to offer, build an altar and offer a sacrifice. And the guy on whose property he is offering this sacrifice says, Here, take it. You're the king, you're offering it to God, take it. Do you recall what David said? I will not offer God a burnt sacrifice that costs me nothing. Now again, remember the parallel or the extension that Paul is working out of. It is not simply confined to the sacrifice of things at confined places and times, but it is all of one's life. Will you sacrifice unto God something that has cost you nothing? Is it easy? No, that's why Paul urges us. <laughs> but he urges us based on the mercy of God. Now I want you to consider something with me. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. The last line in here is very, very important. It says that you are to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today. For what? For your own good. Now, is this because it's to keep us out of trouble? Well, perhaps. <laughs> yes. 
But it is for our own good in a deeper sense. For what Paul is calling us to do is based on the mercy of God. The mercy of God demonstrated in Christ, yes, through the sacrifice of His blood for our sins. So that we may know life and life more abundantly. Obedience to God is always for our own good. Man was created for a purpose, for an end. I know the good Presbyterians out there will be able to answer what is the chief and highest end of man. The chief and highest end of man is to love God and enjoy Him forever. That is the end for which man was created. Now, I want us to stop and think about that. This is the end. God creates us for this end and moves us to that end so that we might know the fullness of life from Him and through Christ. Now, this is the end for which we are created. And God does not leave us alone in our own devices to try to figure out how we reach that end. <laughs> He's given it to us. He's told us, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? He has given us the means of reaching this end. Now, if we're created for this end and not another, will we ever know true happiness, true fullness outside of that end? We cannot and we will not know the fullness of life until we know the fullness of sacrifice. Do you see the fundamental irony here that is so beautiful? That our greatest happiness comes at the point of our greatest sacrifice. That is a beauty, a sublimity that can only be made by the wondrous God who creates all things for His glory. That our greatest happiness comes and our greatest sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our great and mighty God, we are humbled before you as we see the fullness of your work and the life and person of your Son, Jesus Christ. For as far as the corruption of sin goes, the fullness of the redemption of Christ pursues. So that there is nothing that is not covered, touched, redeemed by the blood of Christ. And Lord, I thank you that throughout your word, you teach us that there is nothing unclean that is received with thanksgiving. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us to live in the fullness of life day by day in this blessing. Remind us again of Paul's words. Whether you eat and whether you drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. 
Lord, may we so love you from the depths of our soul that everything we do is a pleasant and pleasing sacrifice unto you. For we pray it in, in the name of that greatest sacrifice, by whose blood we are covered and washed clean, by whose life we are made righteous. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.